Those of you that uh, have been with us at renovation for any length of time know that, uh, <laughs> that this isn't the way that I normally start the message, but I just feel like I need to let you know that um, I've, I get the impression that somebody here today, and I don't know who, somebody here today is desperate. I, I'm not real sure what the desperation is about. Um, whether it's sin in uh, your life, whether it's a medical condition, whether it's a situation you find yourself in. As I was working on this message all week, um, uh, and God kept saying to me over and over again that he is a God of desperation. He's the one that loves it when we are desperate because then we're reaching out to him with both hands, hanging on for all it's worth. Uh, too often we feel so independent that we don't rely on him for our dependence. And I think today he wants to change that in someone's life. Don't know who it is again. But I think this message is for you. So as we go through this message, stick with us. See if God doesn't have something to say to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this change in the weather that is uh, just a delight to, to uh, be a part of. Thank you for this day that you call us to um, corporate worship here at Renovation. Thank you for all those who have come, some for the first time, some for uh, many, many times. Um, speak to us out of your word today. Say something fresh and new to each one of us, me included, so that we might begin to understand a little more and appreciate a little more and know a little better this one they called Jesus and what his purpose was on this earth. If any praise, if any um, thing good comes out of this service today, we'll give you the praise and the honor and the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, before we start the message, there is on the back of your little handouts... We had so many things that are coming up here that um, um, they, they film our commercials, our announcements well in advance. And these are things that are coming up. We have a deadline and, and I just thought we needed to mention a few of these to you. Plus some are brand new. Uh, this Friday is the packathon with the hyphenated word on the Scrabble game, you know. That was great. Um, the Packathon is this week, and we've decided to meet here at Renovation Church, those of you that would be interested in going down to the Sun News building with us to do that. Uh, and we do need to have you sign up. There is a sign-up. We have to know in advance how many. Uh, but if you'll meet here at 6.30 Friday night, we will either caravan or carpool or something on our way down there. If some of you, and I know there are a few that that uh, work down that way and just wanted to meet us. If that's the case, then would you please let Karen Elliott back here in the red shirt and white sweater, 
with her hand raised up so nicely. If you would let Karen know, then we won't be expecting you here. And we'll, once the rest of our tribe gets here, we'll, we'll caravan on down to the Sun News. Um, beginning Tuesday, October the 18th, there will be a women's Bible study. I am not sure what they're doing yet. They were looking at materials and had several choices, and I'm not sure where they have settled. But Phyllis Atwood will be um, leading that. Yes, it is not a typo. It's 7 a.m. It's not 7 p.m. It's for people that want to get up, or women that want to get up real early and do this thing early in the morning before work or to start the day or whatever. Uh, there is a sign-up for it back there. If you're interested, boy, that would be a step of faith, wouldn't it? Sign up for something before you even know what it is. But uh, it will be a, a women's Bible study. That evening, Karen Elliott again is doing a training for our first impressions team, the folks around here that greet you and take care of you. and uh, They do all kinds of behind-the-scenes things that you're not aware of. If you would like to get involved at, at renovation, you're not presently serving anywhere, and you would love to help, in some way that you're thinking, I could do that. See Karen, back at the table, there is a sign-up for it also. That's that Tuesday, the um, um, 18th. And on Thursday, the 20th, we're going to repeat the prayer ministry training on the, the next two Thursdays, the 20th and 27th. We had uh, about eight people that signed up for the first prayer ministry training, and now... Uh, we want to try to do it again. Hopefully this time we'll get some guys that will come forward. We're we short guys in the prayer ministry. So uh, we'd love to have you. On Tuesday the 25th, communion training again. Um, same thing. We need some guys serving communion as well. And the others will be in announcements as we get up to November and December. You will see those coming. But I just wanted to let you know about these October events that are that are right on us here that we really need to know about. So that's pretty much my uh, PR for uh, this morning. All right. We've looked at this scripture before, but I want to go back to it. Uh, Matthew 4.23. Matthew 4.23. I've told you that in Matthew the book of Matthew, Matthew uses a, a literary device to set off a portion of Scripture, and it's between Matthew uh, 4.23 and Matthew uh, 9.35. Uh, the same Scripture, same words almost, identical words are repeated. And what he's saying is, pay close attention to this section of the Scriptures. I've got something to say to you here. And this is how Jesus started his ministry, Matthew 4.23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So his, his ministry was focused on two things, and two things only. One is proclamation, and the second is demonstration. Proclamation and demonstration. In Matthew 7, 28 and 29, um, the section that we're starting to look at today, 
it's, Matthew says this, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. We actually ended up with that, those verses a couple of weeks ago, but I wanted to start at that same place. When he had finished saying these things, what, what things was that? Were that? Were, were they? <laughs> uh, it, was, it was what he had taught in the Sermon on the Mount. That's what, that's what Matthew's referring to here. All the things that he said in the Sermon on the Mount. When he had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed, the scripture said, at his teaching. Why? Because he taught as one who had authority. One who had authority. And I believe uh, two weeks ago, one of the, the fill-in-the-blanks that I gave you was Jesus doesn't just have authority. Jesus is authority. He is authority. Well, where does that authority come from? That authority that uh, he claims and that we claim for him. And you have to go back again if we want to look at Matthew, for example. We can go to the very first chapter, Matthew 1. 20 through 21. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, to Joseph. This is uh, Jesus' earthly father, Mary's husband. Not at this time, but would be. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son... And you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Yeshua, Jesus, Mashiach, the, the Messiah. Jesus the Messiah, he's come to save. The word Jesus means he will save his people. And a little further in that same uh, chapter, verse 23, quoting from Isaiah, it says this, The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God, with us. God was going to come and live with the people of Israel. Now, this is what Jesus told the people in his, in his home church, the folks back home. I don't know wh- how many of you um, have tried to go back, even, even to like a class reunion. It's never quite the same, is it, when you go back home. I was asked to go back to my hometown and, and preach uh, at my brother's church uh, two or three years ago. And my gosh, you drive up and they've got this... <laughs> They've got a mar- it's a small church, small church. They have this marquee out front with my name on it, and I'm thinking, oh my lord, I, this this is not what we want. And um, fortunately, the people were very nice. Usually in your hometown, they're not real nice. Now I had 40 years of of space there when for them to forget about the things I had done way back when, and you know they could think nice things about me. But usually, uh, the people that you grew up with. They know you too well. They know what you were like. Uh, they're going to find every flaw they can, and they're going to say, Jesus? This Jesus from Nazareth? You're the one that was the carpenter's son? You've got to be kidding. This is what Jesus said 
when he started his ministry in Nazareth. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. How about that? Jesus had a custom of going to church on the Sabbath. Hmm, Maybe we ought to be a little more like that. Uh, And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he was telling them that what he had been sent to do was proclaim and demonstrate. Proclaim the good news, preach the good news, and demonstrate what that good news was about by the things he was able to do uh, in, in that land at that time. So what did Jesus do? Well, they didn't like him very much. They took him out. They were going to throw him off the side of the mountain. You remember, they didn't care too much for him in Nazareth. So he moved about 30 miles down the road to the Sea of Galilee and set up his residence and his ministry at a place called Capernaum. And for those that have been with us through this Sermon on the Mount series, Capernaum is like right beside where the Sermon on the Mount took place. It's... You can see it from there. Um, And he said this, which is the closing to that set of scripture that Matthew uh, wrote. Jesus went throughout all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. So Matthew said that's, that's exactly what he did. He preached the good news of the kingdom of God. He proclaimed. And... He demonstrated by healing every disease and sickness. Those are the things we remember about Jesus. So, he was proclaiming in the power of this authority that was given to him by God the Father. Now, we just finished this Sermon on the Mount thing. And um, I do hope from time to time you'll go back to it, read through it, see what words he actually said, and maybe, maybe, just maybe, they'll have a little different meaning for you now than they did before. But by this time in his young ministry, people by the hundreds and probably by the thousands were beginning to understand that he spoke with authority. They were saying that the likes of which they had never heard out of their rabbis and teachers and other folks that had anything to do with Scripture where they were. So let me ask you this question. What does his authority look like? What does his authority look like? We're a small group here. I would be very happy if somebody wanted to tell me what his authority looked like. We won't make that a rhetorical question. We'll make it a question. What did Jesus' authority look like? But I won't call on you because we are alpha, uh, an alpha church, and I won't call on you. Okay? How about this question? How did his authority play out? How did that authority play out in everyday Israel? I see the wheels turning, so I know you're thinking about some of those things. 
What I hope we can do over the... I'm sorry. He used the power given to him. Didn't, didn't squander that power. Didn't use it for himself. He used it for the people of Israel. And eventually for the Gentile people too. Okay? Matthew lays out for his readers ten, count them as we go through before Christmas and after Christmas here, ten miracles that illustrate the demonstration of this authority that Jesus was given. I find each one of them uh, fascinating by itself, but then when you take them as a whole, you begin to see this whole picture of what that authority really looked like. So I hope as we go through both before and after Christmas, uh, these sections of Scripture in uh, uh, Matthew uh, 8 and 9, that you will come to realize that the authority that he had was far-reaching. It wasn't, it wasn't a showy kind of thing. He wasn't doing this to, to show people that he did have this authority, this power, He was doing it to honestly bring them closer to God. Um, John Wimber, the founder of the Association of Vineyard Churches, was so enthralled with reading the Gospels and this demonstration of authority in particular um, that he spent, right after he became a Christian, spent an awful lot of time going through the Gospels, reading nothing else, no no newspapers, nothing, just the Gospels. Wimber had been a rock musician, and he lived the life of a rock musician with all the drink and drugs and everything else that goes along with that until he became a Christian. And in a book called Doing Church that Alexander Vettner wrote, uh, he kind of tells a little bit about John Wimber giving his testimony once, and, and this is what uh, he wrote. What really got hold of John when he understood the gospel of Jesus Christ was the idea, was the deal, excuse me, that was being offered him. Jesus gave up all, all that he had in taking John's messed up life on himself. He offered John his life of adventure, healing the sick, casting out demons, and raising the dead. All John had to do was give up his life and live Jesus' life doing the stuff. John knew himself and his life. He was sick to death with it, so he had no hesitation at all. What a deal. He signed up, but he quickly found that in the eyes of his friends, he was a fool. His constant refrain became, I'm a fool for Jesus, but whose fool are you? This revelation of the kingdom of God, of this man Jesus and his invitation to us to do the stuff with him, was what John lived and died for. Soon after his conversion, John read the Gospels and then came to church asking, when do we get to do the stuff? What stuff? You know, the stuff in the book. Healing the sick, driving out devils, feeding the poor, helping the brokenhearted, raising the dead and all that. Well, we don't really, uh, you know, (laughs) John was indignant. 
You're trying to tell me that I gave up drugs and signed up to do this church thing every Sunday for nothing? The deal was that I get to do the stuff. Now, when do we get to do it? Wow. How many of our churches today are committed to doing the stuff? Doing the stuff that we're going to read about here in Matthew. So let's begin to take a look at what the stuff really looks at, looks like. Matthew 8, 1 through 4 is our main scripture for today. When he came from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cured of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Wow. i tell you, if I were going to start my ministry of demonstration, I think I'd choose something a little bit easier as the first thing than leprosy. In the ancient world, you see, leprosy was the most terrible of all diseases. I've, I found in, in, our, uh, in the preparation for this that um, leprosy really was a name that was given to any skin disease. It didn't have to be leprosy as we understand it today. They just didn't know. So if you had a rash on your, on your skin, they initially called it leprosy. It was only found to be leprosy after a while and things started happening and pieces started dropping off and that sort of thing, then they would know that that was leprosy. But it could be uh, psoriasis or you know, some other condition that we know today are dermatological uh, problems. There was no medical treatment, and the disease caused the body to literally rot away. And eventually it would cause death. Most people considered lepers virtually dead already. Just to be pronounced with the disease was like 20 years ago to be pronounced with cancer. It was a death sentence. You knew it was coming, you just didn't know when. And leprosy had social implications as well. It separated the victim from other human beings. Since he or she had to go about calling out, unclean, unclean, unclean to warn anybody that might be approaching them or come anywhere close to them. And no one dared touch a leper. You just wouldn't do that. In Israel, as a matter of fact, it was illegal to even greet a leper, to say hello. So they were totally outcasts. Lepers were not allowed to share in the services in their synagogues. And they were banned from worship at the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, lepers were banned from the entire city of Jerusalem as they were from any of the walled cities in, in the Middle East. Now, I don't know whether any of you have ever had any contact face-to-face -face with a leper. Um, on my first trip to Nepal... Uh, I was going to see the, the Hindu temple, the main Hindu temple uh, downtown to see, you know, what kind of stuff they carried on there. 
that's another story. But on the way into the temple, we had to walk through a hallway that was literally lined with lepers. Because we weren't Hindu. We had to go this alternate way. We couldn't go in the main entrance. Literally lined with lepers of all ages. I guess the smallest was a little girl, maybe five, six, something like that. And up to old people, um, 70 years old or whatever. I had never seen anything like that. So isolated from all the rest of the population. Just the look on their faces of almost a shyness. They, won't, they wouldn't look at you in the eye. They would always look down or maybe turn their heads a little bit as you'd walk by. That's what they had come to expect. And I'm, I'm imagining in my mind that it was that way or worse for the people in Israel at this time. Well, where does that isolation practice come from? I, I don't want to dwell here, but I think we've got to go to Old Testament and look at this. Leviticus 13. And we'll, go, we'll kind of fly through this for you. Levitic, these are on the, on the screen too, so you won't have to look them up. Uh, Leviticus 13, 1 through 8, and I'm just pulling out some, some scriptures here. You can go back and read 13 and 14 at your leisure. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron... When anyone has a swelling or a rash or a bright spot on the skin that may become an infectious skin disease, he must be brought to Aaron, the priest, or to one of his sons who are priests. The priest is to examine the sore on the skin, and if the hair in the sore has turned white and the sore appears to be more than skin deep, it is an infectious skin disease. When the priest examines him, he shall pronounce him ceremonially unclean. So the first thing leprosy was, was it was more than skin deep. Leprosy was more than skin deep. The priest is to, this is verse 4, the priest is to put the infected person in isolation for seven days. On the seventh day, the priest is to examine him, and if he sees that the sore is unchanged and has not spread in the skin, he is to keep him in isolation for another seven days. On the seventh day, the priest is to examine him again, and if the sore has faded or has not spread in the skin, the priest shall pronounce him clean. It is only a rash. The man must wash his clothes, and he will be clean. Hmm. But if the rash does spread in his skin after he has shown himself to the priest to be pronounced clean, he must appear before the priest again. So leprosy spreads. That's another sign. It spreads. The priest is to examine him, verse 8, and if the rash has spread in the skin, he shall pronounce him unclean. It is an infectious disease. Verse 45, the person with such an infectious disease must wear torn clothes, let his hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of his face, and cry out, unclean, unclean. So leprosy defiles. Verse 46, as long as he has the infection, he remains unclean. He must live alone. He must live outside the camp. Finally, leprosy isolates people from God and from man. 
Leviticus 14. The Lord said to Moses in verse 1 and 2, These are the regulations for the diseased person at the time of his ceremonial cleansing when he is brought to the priest. Verse 10, On the eighth day he must bring two male lambs and one ewe lamb, a year old, without defect, along with three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering and one log of oil. Sound familiar? Verse 13. He is to slaughter the lamb in the holy place where the sin offering and the burnt offering are slaughtered. And then verse 19. Then the priest is to sacrifice the sin offering and make atonement for the one to be cleansed from his uncleanliness. Leprosy. Sin. So much alike. Sin is more than skin deep. Sin defiles. Sin sets us apart from God. Could it be that this first miracle that we see in chapter 8 of Matthew was Jesus' way of showing a group of people who would have understood very clearly what the significance here was. That he had come not only to heal the man of leprosy, but to heal the land of its sin. Of its sin. Jesus not only heals the leper, but he does so by reaching out and touching him as no one would have dared do in those days. So here's the big idea. Lepers were separated from all other human beings, but not from God. And if we think about the sin part, sinners were in the midst of all other human beings, but separated from God. Until... Until verse 3 here says, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. And he said, I am willing. I am willing. Be clean. The demonstration of his authority here is so striking that in each of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each one of them records that Jesus touched the leper. He just didn't do that. Leprosy rendered a person spiritually unclean and therefore cursed by God. But don't miss this fact. When Jesus touched the leper, his touch, rather than contaminating Jesus, healed the leper. Now this is a demonstration of Jesus' coming and what it does in respect to human sin. Romans 5.8, this isn't on your, on your page there. Romans 5.8 says, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Think about it. Just, I mean, put the paper away and just think about it. Jesus didn't become sinful by becoming one of us. Just as he didn't become leprous by touching the leper. 
Rather, he made it possible for us to be cleansed from sin by his contact. When he touched us, we became healed from sin. And the, this question always comes up, so let me ask it before you ask it. Jesus tells the guy after he's healed, uh, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. I mean, first of all, how are you not going to tell anybody? I mean, they're going to see, for one thing, but isn't the first thing you're going to do? Tell somebody? And we don't know for sure why, but Mark's gospel helps us uh, identify this a little bit more. Probably he didn't want to draw attention to himself as a miracle worker. Uh, Mark says that Jesus was healing many people, but he didn't want a desire for healings to hinder his more important work, which was preaching the gospel, telling people that the kingdom was near. That was why he had come. All right, so let's just think together for a minute here. Leprosy meant sickness. Leprosy meant disfigurement. Leprosy meant social banishment. Leprosy was thought to be highly contagious. Sufferers of leprosy had to stay far away from anyone else. And nobody ever approached lepers. Nobody would dream of touching a leper. And with all that in mind, can you, can you imagine, can you feel the shudder and the... <gasps> And the people that were looking on when Jesus reached out his hand and touched the leper. Can you imagine? Can you imagine or can you feel the warmth and the renewal of life that the leper felt when Jesus reached out and touched him? The touch is the same today. Nobody had touched him in a long time. Maybe, maybe years nobody had touched him. I don't know how long we have to be separated from God before we can allow ourselves to be touched by him. It doesn't matter whether it was yesterday or it was 20 years ago. It doesn't matter. I told you about the little or the, the leper colony in Nepal that I, was, that I found myself in the midst of. And there were three guys that were with me that were walking ahead. And I just, for some reason, I could not take my eyes off of these people. I had heard about leprosy all my life. I would read it in the Bible. I was scared to death to even be in that room. I didn't know whether breathing the air would give me leprosy. I, I had no earthly idea what, what, was, what was up. But I saw the eyes of the people. The eyes, the emptiness and, and the isolation came through in their, in their eyes. And I walked over and put my hand on the shoulder of one man that was there. And his whole being changed. His whole being changed. The other people, the other lepers there saw it and they began to look and I smiled at them and they smiled back 
It was like we had made a connection. At the time, I wasn't thinking about, God, how am I going to get this off my hands? <laughs> and as I recall, he had, he had these three fingers. I don't know if it was right or left hand. He had these three fingers that were gone, just nubs there. This one didn't have the first knuckle. And then his face was, you know, part of, his, part of an ear was gone and half of a nose was gone. But he, he was beautiful. He was absolutely beautiful. I don't know. I, I never went back to see him. I have no idea. There were some Catholic nuns that had taken that group of people on as their ministry. They were ministering to them in this hallway thing, this uh, uh, colonnade, I guess you would call it. It was stone and it was, you know, it was a big uh, walkway that went through around the, the main entrance. I did ask a uh, physician friend that lived in Nepal, was a missionary there for 30 years, about the experience. And he said, you really don't need to be too concerned. It's not as contagious as people thought it was. You almost have to have an open wound and get into their open wound in order to... to uh, contracted, and then that might not happen. So, said so you probably got nothing to worry about. But if if anything were to show up, we have medicines that'll take care of it instantly. Today, it's a it's an easy thing to cure. But these people are going to live in isolation in that country because they've been banished by their society, and they don't have a god. In Hindu, they have 30 million gods in Hinduism. Not a one of them cares a hoot about an individual with leprosy. But Jesus does. This leper didn't know it, but he was suddenly caught up in God's renewal movement, God's restoration of his people. This week we're looking at the restoration of this Jewish. Person. Next week, we're looking at the restoration of a Gentile. Yes, Jesus was reaching out beyond his own people to God's people, all the people. It's a, it's a foreshadowing of what's to come. The leper needed not only physical healing, but integration back into society, back into his family, and back into village life. And in Jewish society, it wouldn't do much good for him to go out and say, hey, I've been healed of leprosy. Y'all can come up to me now. It's okay. It's okay. That would do absolutely no good unless he had some official authorization. And at this time, Jesus' authorization wasn't good enough for most of the masses of people. So Jesus tells him to go through the process, the regular process that one would. It says that here. Now you know what that process is. He was to show himself before the priest and to offer the sacrifice that was required in the Old Testament. Then he could claim, the priests would proclaim... And everybody would know that indeed he was healed of his leprosy. Restoring God's people was part of what the gospel was all about. Restoring God's people. 
And the challenge for today's Christian is to ask, and each one of us need to ask this, what does it mean, what does it really mean to recognize and to submit to the authority of Jesus? What does that look like? And are we at Renovation Church going to commit ourselves to doing the stuff? Or are we just going to read and talk about it? My vote is for doing the stuff. Not because it's fun, not because people will talk about it, because Jesus did it. And he's commanded us to do the same. We've had, uh, just recently finished up, our first prayer ministry training. You'll see us as we go through, uh, through time here. We will drop the word prayer from this and it's going to be called ministry team. Our ministry team. Because it's much more than just prayer. Prayer, yes, an important part of it. But it's much more than just prayer. We finished training some six, seven people, and we had several others that were trained in, in, uh, on our leadership team already. So the folks that you see that come uh, to surround this place at the end of the service each Sunday are people that have been trained, that have been commissioned, that understand what doing the stuff is all about and cannot wait to reach out a hand and touch someone in the name of Jesus Christ. Doing what he did, passing that along, being willing to touch. Once again, I don't know, I don't know the state of desperation here. I don't know... If somebody in this group or somebody at the 1115 group is just desperate. Desperate. Well, we look great on the outside, don't we? But desperate for a touch. If that's you, I would suggest that you come visit one of these folks. Um, they'll be standing on either side after the service. Let them pray with and for you. They would love to. They're required to. <laughs> Jesus required them. And on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus was sitting with his disciples in the upper room and he took bread, just a common loaf, and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. I wonder if he thought about the leper as he broke this bread. The condition of the leper, the condition of his heart, the condition of his soul, the condition of you and me. Somehow I think he could see all that. 
In the same manner, he took the cup and poured wine, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. For the forgiveness of sins. And I think as he looked into that cup, he didn't see his reflection. But he saw a reflection of a cross. And he knew what those words he had just spoken meant. How powerful they were. My blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. He said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this wine, you remember my death until I come. And we say, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Come and heal us. Come and heal us spiritually. Come and heal us physically. Come and heal us emotionally. Take care of all of our hurts and habits and hang-ups that we have. They're yours. Take them. Restore us to what you have called us to be. And we believe that that will, ta- will happen. That will take place. Now, in, in our church, we use wine. If you choose not to use wine as your mode of, uh, of uh, communion element, we have juice on either side. If you'll just let the server know, they will take care of you there. Um, Sue, would you come, please? You have a preference, switch side? I don't either go. Won't you come to the table? It's open for you.